Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series along with Dr. Terry Davidson, director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. It is my great pleasure to introduce our esteemed colleague, Dr. Katie Holton, who is a professor at American University with joint appointments in the Department of Neuroscience and the Department of Health Studies. Dr. Holton is an expert in the field of nutritional neuroscience, and her work in this area has earned strong support from federal agencies, including the United States Department of Defense. We're excited that Dr. Holton has joined us today as we look forward to her describing her research and its implications for brain function and human health. Dr. Holton, welcome to the Lobes and Robes podcast. Thank you for having me. Dr. Holden, would you tell us, uh, you're a nutritional neuroscientist. Would you describe what the field of nutrition neuroscience involves? Sure, I would love to. I know a lot of people haven't heard of that term. There aren't many of us out there, so I would be happy to describe it to you. So basically, this is a combination of the fields of nutritional science with neuroscience. And people in this field tend to study how diet impacts brain and central nervous system function, but we're also many times interested in peripheral nervous system function as well. I see. So your credentials distinguish you from other neuroscientists in that you also have a master's degree in public health. In what ways has your master's degree in public health influenced your work as a neuroscientist? You know, I I think it's given me perspective that I would never have had otherwise. In public health, we tend to look at health of a population. So we zoom out a little bit. We do work on a, a larger, with larger groups like cohort studies, which are very informative to give us hypotheses that then can be examined with other types of studies. For me personally, when I was getting my master's in public health, it's in epidemiology. I got a ton of training in statistics. I was able to analyze data at a population level, for example, looking at diet and cognitive function inside a population of elderly people. And I think it's informed my research. And I also have a lot of training and understanding of cultural differences, which I've used with some international research I've conducted. Obviously, your research is related to important health issues in the United States and globally. You're known specifically for your research on investigating how serious illnesses like golf wealth syndrome, fibromyalgia, neurodevelopmental conditions like ADHD might be addressed by nutritional interventions. Could you describe some of the basic concepts on which this research is based? Yeah, the, all of this research is based on, on two major concepts. One is the idea that there are specific compounds inside our diet that may have negative effects 
when it comes to central nervous system function. So I study a, a group of compounds that are called excitotoxins. And these are basically amino acids that when they're added to the diet in their free form, may have the ability to alter neurotransmission in the brain. I also study the positive and protective effects of micronutrients. There are many, many examples of how micronutrients can positively affect brain function. But we have other examples where there are specific micronutrients that actually protect against the excitotoxicity that I study. Could you explain what a micronutrient is? Yes, a micronutrient includes vitamins and minerals. As compared to fats and sugars and such? Yeah, so macronutrients, a macro meaning big, would be your protein, your fat, and your carbohydrate, which are the parts of food that people see easily. Micronutrients are those little things like vitamin A, vitamin C, zinc, magnesium. These are things that we need in very small amounts, but that have major impact on human health. And can I ask you, just to take things back to you know, an even more basic level for a lay person such as myself, can you describe, like, how do you do this research? So basically, I do dietary intervention research. These are clinical trials. So we recruit subjects and we analyze baseline diet and baseline symptoms. So we have multiple measures we use. And then we basically train them on how to follow the diet. This training takes about two hours. We give them a lot of documentation, information. So for example, we tell them what to avoid in the diet and what to eat more of very specifically. So with the goal of removing these excitotoxins that may have harmful effects while we're maximizing their intake of micronutrients that we know are important for their protective capacity. And then what we do is bring them back in, reanalyze all of those same measures, analyzing both diet and the outcome measures we're interested in. And then we go on and have people move into a challenge period. We do this for most of our studies, but I can give you an example of an epilepsy study we're running right now where we don't do the second part. But the second part is usually a double-blind placebo-controlled crossover challenge where we are challenging people with either monosodium glutamate, which is one example of a glutamate excitotoxin in the diet, or placebo. And then we can do it in a crossover design where everybody experiences both conditions. They have a washout period in the middle. And so basically what we can see is, do people get better on the diet? After one month on the diet, do symptoms go away? And then do they return when we challenge with MSG and not with placebo? Awesome. And how do you measure the effects? Are you asking people what their experiences are? Or are there ways of actually, like, do you actually look at the brain or... We do have questionnaires that we ask questions of individuals. So for example, when I do chronic pain research, many of these chronic patients have many, many symptoms, 20 plus symptoms they're experiencing. So we will do a symptom measure where we have individuals report on the symptoms they've experienced in the past week. And so we can get their basic overview of what has gone away. But we have individual measures we also use. We also collect blood and urine. We do computerized cognitive testing. We do what's called dolorimetry, which is where we have a device where we can apply certain amounts of pressure uh, to different body locations. And then we're basically seeing how much pressure a person can withstand in each of those locations before they feel pain. And so this can give us a measure of pain tolerance, basically, uh, before and after they've been on the diet. We also do EEG measurements to look at brainwave activity. And then we also use MRI. And is that an fMRI or are you looking at what 
I'm just trying to get a picture for our audience about how this research happens and whether you're actually peering at the brain or it sounds like you're looking at sort of the effects that the brain is having in other parts of the body. We do use fMRI. We have a, a manuscript actually that's in production right now that should be submitted in the next few weeks or so where we did a test of working memory. And that is fMRI, where we're looking at different blood flow changes and connectivity changes in the brain during the working memory task. But we also have a measure of like their accuracy during the task. So we can see that people significantly improved on the task after one month on the diet. And we also can see how connectivity changes were differed before and after the diet. Additionally, we also use something called MRS, which is called magnetic resonance spectroscopy, which is a way that we can measure brain analytes. And this includes glutamate, which is the main neurotransmitter we're trying to affect. We can also measure other compounds like antioxidants such as glutathione and other measures in the brain as well. Again, you've a lot of your work focuses on serious disorders, Gulf War syndrome and fibromyalgia. What are your main findings using the techniques you just described with respect to maybe treating or intervening to help people with those disorders? The findings have been quite dramatic. We've seen a drastic symptom reduction. For example, in a Gulf War illness study that we've recently finished, we saw a reduction of nine symptoms going away after one month on the diet. And just to give you guys a perspective how significant that is, if I was doing a drug study, I could test a drug in chronic pain patients and I would I could take something like pain and I could say, oh, if I can make that pain measure reduce by 30%, then I could probably market my drug. But I, this standard is so much higher because we're making symptoms actually go away, not just one symptom. So we saw reductions not only in pain and fatigue, we saw improvements in cognitive function. Many of these subjects, to give you an example, have uh, significant problems with memory and attention. Many of them have difficulty speaking, so they'll have difficulty putting words together. So we saw some drastic improvements. Also, people reporting improvements in sleep and mood, even gastrointestinal symptoms improving. So it was, it was pretty profound. And then we've analyzed some, this is an example of some questionnaire measures. We have questionnaires that measure some of the mood symptoms that people experience, like depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And significantly, we found that the diet improved all three of these things. And I was mostly shocked, I have to share, by the PTSD finding. I really questioned whether we were going to have any effect on PTSD because it's such a, a profound onset that veterans experience many times with their PTSD symptoms. And so I wasn't very confident that we would see anything with there. And we had some dramatic stories coming back from individuals, and we saw significant improvements on that measure as well. That is so amazing. And what exactly was the diet? So the diet is what I call the low glutamate diet. The, the main focus of it is to remove sources of free glutamate from the diet. And let me explain what that is. So glutamate's an amino acid in the diet. You can have bound amino acids that are found in meat, for example. 
those do not appear to cause anybody a problem. When they're bound together in a protein, our body has to digest them very slowly by breaking apart that protein into individual amino acids. And they're in a great concentration. Their, their ratio of amino acids to each other is exactly what the body wants. So it doesn't appear to cause a problem. What does appear to cause a problem is when glutamate is added to a food in its free form. Now, the reason this is done is because glutamate has flavor-enhancing properties. So we have neurons in our tongue, our taste receptors, that are stimulated by glutamate. And so uh, food manufacturers love glutamate because it enhances the flavor of food. And many of us really, really like the taste and so this is what we're actually trying to exclude in the diet is these sources of free glutamate. And then at the same time, we're teaching people where these micronutrients are found that are protective against excitotoxicity caused by excess glutamate so that they can increase consumption of those foods at the same time. So I have a question that has to do, I think the nine symptoms you were talking about that were related to Gulf War syndrome, is that correct? Yes. So that's a case where you have a lot of folks who probably endured stress of some sort. So what I'm wondering is, is are there factors that predispose people? Do you know anything about factors that might predispose people to the harmful effects of glutamate, where perhaps other people who aren't exposed to those factors, glutamate wouldn't be quite as harmful? So we see onset of symptoms. And, and so let's back up just a second. Outside of Gulf War illness, the symptoms are very similar to fibromyalgia. It's also a chronic pain disorder with this multi-symptom profile. And onset of these symptoms tends to occur for fibromyalgia following one of three things. There's usually trauma, especially head and neck trauma, or a severe infection, and or stress, and usually a major stressor, not just, you know, your everyday stress, but something significant. Now, when you zoom out and you look at the veteran population, and this again is outside of Gulf War illness, veterans obviously can undergo quite a significant amount of stress. So that alone could be a potential trigger. But they also have the, of course, have head injuries, they may have infections, they have other exposures. In the case of Gulf War illness, these individuals had a very short conflict in the Gulf, but what ended up happening was they had many, many exposures that were neurotoxic. So, for example, in their this short conflict, they ended up having exposures to pesticides. They were given these pyridostigmine bromide pills, which were a way to actually try to protect them from some neurotoxic exposures that they might have, such as sarin gas exposure while they were there. They did end up having those neurotoxic exposures in addition to these pyridostigmine bromide pills. And then they also had these pesticide exposures and depleted uranium and other things. So they're a unique group in that they had so many exposures in such a short time frame that I think it makes them even more unique. But to get at your question, I would say that my hypothesis is that what is happening that makes people susceptible is that they may be having permeability of the blood-brain barrier. We know from animal research that trauma, infection, high stress all cause permeability of the blood-brain barrier. I actually know a little bit about that. And one of the areas of the brain that seems most susceptible or vulnerable to blood-brain barrier changes is the hippocampus. And it's also an area of the brain that is involved in memory and it's affected by stress. And so have you done any work that kind of focuses on particular brain targets uh, such as the hippocampus? Yes, I actually did some research with you, Terry. You and I have collaborated on some research in a rat study where we have looked at the effects on the hippocampus with exposure based on what we would consider a 
normal diet, which for a rat would be a chow diet. And then we also looked at a Western type diet that was high in fat and sugar. And uh, we found some really interesting things where we saw that when we added MSG to these two types of diets, that MSG seemed to have a more negative effect on hippocampal function when the rats were consuming chow and had somewhat of a protective effect against the negative things you usually see with the Western diet on hippocampal function, which was quite interesting. MSG is one of these uh, glutamates. Yes, correct. It is a source of glutamate. I actually was wondering if, say, any of the human research, you mentioned there's some fMRI studies and so on, have found anything that looks like there might be a basis for hippocampal dysfunction. We actually haven't looked for hippocampal dysfunction per se, though, of course, we believe that there's potential for hippocampal dysfunction. One, just as you pointed out, the hippocampus is a part of the brain that is very susceptible to insult. But we also are seeing in these populations that they're having a lot of difficulty with things like memory that, of course, the hippocampus are important for. So, yes, we definitely think the hippocampus is a key area involved with these symptoms. Could you talk a little bit about your findings on ADHD? I know that's something you know that a lot of people are concerned about, and there's a lot of information out there, a lot of claims about how diet can help with ADHD, and lots of parents who are frantically trying to control their kids' diets to help them out. Just wondering what you're what, what you found in, in that area. So I'd be happy to speak on that. So yes, I've done research in ADHD. We've looked at different factors in the diet, including micronutrient intake. I've done work with fatty acid analyses. We actually are a group of collaborators I have at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, and I are, are about to publish a paper looking at maternal intake of omega-3 fatty acids and their effects on inflammatory mediators. There's definitely a lot of interest around diet and ADHD. I would say the best data to date would be for the protective effects of omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids are known for reducing neuroinflammation, and they also can actually increase the ability of a cell basically to put out or take away receptors which we call fluidity of the cell membrane. So I personally have also studied some exposure to food additives. We did a study in the lab looking at exposure to artificial coloring, which um, you may be aware if you follow any of the ADHD literature. For years, there's been talk about the fact that artificial coloring might play a role in ADHD. And there are different groups that are pushing back against that concept. Some of that data was muddied, if you will, because they had an exposure to sodium benzoate in addition to these food colorings. So we did a study where we took sodium benzoate out of the picture and we challenged with a mixture of the different food coloring. We found some very slight effects, but they weren't very pronounced. So if that's part of the picture, my take-home message would be, yes, I think it's a good idea to avoid artificial food coloring, but I don't think it's the whole story. There was one publication, actually, interestingly, that pointed out some synergistic action between these food coloring chemicals and the excitotoxins that I typically study. But to date, I have not been able to test that in a study. We've run up against some roadblocks with ADHD because you really want a population of children with ADHD who are not medicated. 
And it, there are many people these days, because the medications have such profound effects, that they're refusing to take their child off of medication to participate in the study. It really limits the ability to do really good dietary research by taking that factor out. There was also a big trend towards gluten-free diets. And I'm wondering, is that, do you think that that's medically supported, the idea that gluten can cause ADHD or contribute to it? Um, so it's that's been talked about a little bit with ADHD. It's actually much more common in autism research. Um, so there have been st studies done looking at removing gluten and dairy from the diet. Um, and there have been some benefits of that reported. Um, I can tell you in the autism world, I know of lots of parents who are cutting out both of those. Interestingly, there's some data coming out on the effects of glutamate. Um, well, I shouldn't say data coming out. Let me back up and say um, that there are individuals who are actually uh, kind of purporting a low glutamate diet, what I study, um, for children with autism. And, um, and so there, there is a potential there for an interesting connection, but really good research needs to be done to formally test it, which hasn't yet happened. Yeah, I think I think part of the uh, you know what happens is there's there's an idea that something might work, and so then in the sort sort of parent chat rooms, those ideas really spread as gospel way before the scientific research has co been completed. I would say that there's not a lot of harm in removing gluten. So if a, a parent wanted to try that, that's not very harmful. We have a lot of foods that contain gluten that are just filler foods. You know, it's like your pasta and your bread and some things like that. So when you remove gluten, you're not removing these really nutrient-dense things from the diet. I have a bigger concern with people removing dairy because for children, when you remove dairy, you're removing a source of many micronutrients, and you're also removing a major source of calcium in the diet. And so children are growing. They need calcium in high amounts because they're building bone as they grow. And it's really limiting their intake of calcium. What would you say to a parent of a kid with ADHD in terms of what they should avoid? And how do you avoid artificial coloring in food? Do you just look for it in the ingredient list or just sort of avoid processed food? Or how do you do that? These are my rules of thumb. I would tell someone what to do. I would say start reading your ingredient labels on, on foods. And those ingredient labels should, one, be short. If that you see a product that has lots of ingredients, just put it back on the shelf. Two, they should be easy to read. So if you see lots of complicated words that you don't understand, put it back on the shelf. As far as food coloring is concerned, it's pretty clear. You'll see red number 40, blue number one. So you'll see the colors listed. So they're pretty easy to avoid. The last recommendation I would say is you should only see ingredients on that label that you can add to a food when you're cooking. There are some really sneaky ways they add glutamate to foods. For example, you can use the term natural flavor. And people don't aren't scared of the word natural flavor. But if I said, don't buy a food unless you can add that ingredient to a food yourself, you should think, well, uh, when I look at my cabinet, do I see natural flavor on the shelf? <laughs> you know, of course we don't, right? And then you should ask yourself, well, what is natural flavor? <laughs> and the reason they can use that with glutamate is that the term natural means they got the glutamate from a natural source. And all they have to do is hydrolyze a protein to get free glutamate. So it's always from a natural source. 
So it's very sneaky. So it seems pretty obvious that your work has global implications. In that regard, I understand that part of your research focuses on a population of Meru, Kenya. Would you explain the aims of this research and and why the people of uh, Meru have attracted your attention? So how this came about was I have a colleague who's at the University of Michigan, Dr. Daniel Claw, who's a very well-known pain researcher. And he approached me because he had been doing some work in Meru, Kenya, and he had been looking inside this population. They have very high rates of chronic pain. And so he was just kind of going on doing a survey, talking to people, trying to figure out what their exposures were. And he kind of saw a pattern between the people with chronic pain that he they were using a seasoning mix, which is called Machuzi mix. And when he looked at the Machuzi mix, next time he was in a store, he saw that it had MSG in it and he thought of my research. So he invited me out to come do some research to investigate whether at this MSG exposure might be having an effect on these individuals in Meru, Kenya. It was a unique population, not only because they had a ton of chronic pain, but because they only had a few sources of glutamate in the diet. But those sources tended to be used a lot. So for example, this Machusi mix, many people were using it on multiple dishes, both at lunch and dinner. So they were getting multiple exposures per day. It was very interesting research. I had to create an alternative to this Machusi mix. I had to figure out all the other normal spices that were in it and create an alternative without MSG. And basically went into the population and recruited these subjects with chronic pain and did a dietary intervention with them by giving them an alternative to this Machusi mix and teaching them the other few things they needed to avoid. And then we, you know, remeasured pain symptoms at the end. In this case, this was all done by questionnaire or self-report, but we did see a significant reduction in pain report and overall pain impact on their lives after the dietary intervention, which was fascinating. So you've already talked a little bit about additives that uh, people regularly consume, and, and obviously the folks in Meru are consuming some of those additives, at a, or at least some of those agents at a high degree. These are basically excitotoxic, I believe that was the term you used. So what is it that excitotoxins actually do to the brain? We're trying to figure that out. I'll explain the term excitotoxin to you first, because that, that'll make more sense. We take glutamate as an example. Uh, glutamate in the diet is an amino acid, like I mentioned. But glutamate in the brain is the most ubiquitous excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. So glutamate's job is to get that next neuron in line excited so that tra- neuro- other neurotransmitters are released. So glutamate is good and we want it to function to do its job. However, there's been a huge amount of research and this is a basic science research showing that if glutamate becomes in too high of an amount, it actually has the ability to overexcite neurons to the point that they die. So it can have a toxic effect in high amounts. And so the term excitotoxin was coined by John Olney many, many years ago and might've been 1970 when he first coined the term. And so there are a couple other compounds that can do it. So aspartate is another negatively charged amino acid in the diet that actually can activate one of the glutamate receptors. It seems to also have an effect. And then we have another example of a a compound called L-cysteine that has kind of indirect effects. 
But there are other excitotoxins in the environment. For example, there's a very potent excitotoxin called domoic acid that can be formed. And we find it in things like shellfish if the shellfish feed on algae. So if you guys have heard of algal blooms that sometimes occur, in these algal blooms, the reason they're toxic is because of this domoic acid production. And if animals feed on it, we can see neurological symptoms in the animals. But if shellfish feed on it and then people eat the shellfish, we can see those effects in humans as well. Is it common for, if I went to the supermarket and bought shellfish, that they would tell me whether or not they'd fed on these blooms? Or? No, they're theoretically, they're not supposed to be farming the shellfish or collecting the shellfish if they've been in an algal bloom. But, you know, you can't control that everywhere. So, for example, in Canada, there was an outbreak. They called it amnesic shellfish poisoning. We had an, this outbreak of amnesia in this population, and it was because they all ate the, these, the shellfish from the same place, you know. Would you say these types of foods then, they should always be avoided, is that correct? Would you recommend that? So I can tell you without a doubt there are people who will not react to these. So if I just challenged people in the general population, I would get a subset of them that may have symptoms. Headache would be a very, very common symptom that I see when we do our challenges. We induce headache and migraine very easily, just to give you one example. But I would not expect your general population, the majority of your population would still be okay if I challenge them with glutamate where we wouldn't see symptoms. If the case is, if I'm correct in my hypothesis that it's permeability of the blood-brain barrier, it would be that subset of the population that may be susceptible. So it does cause a little bit of a conundrum because we have the glutamate industry, which is very rich and powerful. And of course, they want to be able to market their product, namely MSG. And, you know, their argument is, well, free glutamate is found naturally in some foods. So you can't regulate us because, of course, people are getting exposure in other areas. And they are completely correct. I can tell you there are foods with naturally occurring glutamate. To give you a couple examples, soy sauce is very high in free glutamate. And it just happens that when you're making it, the fermentation process frees up the glutamate. All of your alternatives to soy sauce are equally high in glutamate. Aged cheeses would be another example. Things like Parmesan, which we love, that rich flavor comes from the free glutamate in it. Do you just restrict an industry or do you, um, you know, I think the more important thing is to get a message out to say, help people understand who are sensitive, that they can make decisions because they know if free glutamate's in a product or not, that that might be the more important thing to do. It's the same kind of problem faced with high-fat diets or high-saturated fats and sugars. It's pretty difficult to regulate them. And not only that, not everybody, and even in rat models, will show will become obese on these diets. And sometimes the blood-brain barrier is not affected in animals and people that don't become obese. So it is a difficult problem in terms of trying to figure out how to control intake of these things in a way that help people be healthy. Yeah, I think a better example would be trans fat. So trans fats, you know, are produced when we hydrogenate a fat and hydrogenation tries to make this fat behave like a saturated fat and it allows products to sit on a store shelf longer. We had fantastic data that came out showing such a profound negative effect of trans fatty acids that now we have regulation in place to help companies start removing trans fats from food so we can take away that exposure. But I think you're completely correct. With other fats and sugars in the diet, it's much harder. One of our early podcast folks, 
Professor Grossman from the law school talked about trans fat. Susan, you correct me if I'm mistaken, but I, I believe he said that it, mostly they were encouraged to remove trans fats, but there really wasn't any legal or policy that required them to remove trans fats from their products. Is that what you recall, Susan? I thought he said that they were required to remove trans fats and that it was as you know a, a rare success story. They were able to really, yeah, we'll have to go back and, and look at that again. My recollection, it was a success story, but it's because they found better things to do and trans fats got such a bad rep that they weren't selling the stuff that they wanted to sell. We can take care of that and edit. And so I'm thinking as we're talking about what the policy takeaways might be for this amazing research and, and maybe at least one thing that seems to be clear should be done is instead of labeling products with natural flavor as an ingredient that manufacturers should be required to say that there's glutamate, that, you know, added glutamates. There's a, a person who's leading uh, something called the Truth and Labeling Campaign. And this is really a movement where they're trying to get manufacturers to do just that, where you have kind of like a little, I want to call it a warning label, but of course, manu food manufacturers don't want a warning label on there. But, you know, to say just as an acknowledgement that there is glutamate, free glutamate is in this product to make it a little bit easier to avoid. You guys might be familiar with a product contains aspartame, for example, there's a population of phenylketonuric, which is a genetic condition, and they, they can't have phenylalanine, which is found in the aspartame. So they have a little warning on there to let people know that it's there. So if a person has PKU, phenylketonuria, that they can avoid that product. And so this would be similar to that, where you have a subset of the population that's sensitive and a, some sort of warning label on there to let them know that they should be avoiding it, but maybe not everybody has to avoid it. If it gives the food a bad rep, you know, that should give manufacturers an incentive to maybe take the MSG out of the product and to just use the kinds of herbs and spices that are normally used to make food taste good. Well, keep in mind that for food manufacturers, they have the ability to hide in certain ingredients, and this is because of trade secrets. They don't have to then divulge every single thing that they're putting in a product. So for example, they could use the term spices, and they could be using it to hide the different spices that they're using, but they could also hide free glutamate being added under that as well, which is tricky. I've even seen products where you see, like it'll say cumin, coriander, spices, and you should always ask yourself, wait a minute, cumin and coriander are spices. Why do they have this other word here? What are you hiding under that term? But at least a, a regulation that said that you must disclose added glutamate, that would solve part of this. Yes, I think that would be a huge step in the right direction. So uh, there are a lot of claims out there that certain foods, I'm particularly familiar with foods that are supposed to make you smarter and protect your, the health of the brain. Sometimes uh, I think curcumin and turmeric and ginseng are, are things that are claimed to have that. I just wonder what your opinion about such claims are. And are there any foods out there that you would recommend as a means of improving or preserving brain health? Yes, there's actually some pretty good data on some of these compounds. So curcumin and turmeric are two examples where you have potent anti-inflammatory properties. And so those can have effects on the periphery and in the brain because we know that neuroinflammation co-occurs with excitotoxicity in the brain. The other thing that co-occurs with excitotoxicity is oxidative stress. 
So oxidative stress for people who are unfamiliar, it, there's a production of what we call free radicals. And these free radicals, the only way that we can stop them from causing damage, and they can damage cells and proteins and even nucleic acids and DNA, but our only counter to them to stop them from having this negative effect is our antioxidants. And of course, antioxidants are solely provided by diet. So you will see companies that are now taking antioxidants and making them as a supplement. And that could be have function as an antioxidant, which could be helpful. But one of the really interesting things about antioxidants is we need lots of them, not one antioxidant. And the reason is because each of them has the ability to go in certain parts of the brain and the periphery to have their effect or have this protective effect. So I'll give you an example. We have two vitamins that have major antioxidant capability, vitamin C and vitamin E. Both of these are not only antioxidants, but they have protective effects against excitotoxicity, and they also have anti-inflammatory effects. But what's interesting is vitamin C is water-soluble. So it can go anywhere we have watery fluid in the body. And if we deplete someone in vitamin C and then we give it back to them, the first place it goes is to the brain. We know that the, the body preferentially wants that vitamin C in the brain and that it's very, very beneficial. Vitamin E is fat soluble, so it can go in things like cell membranes where vitamin C can't go. And so we don't want just one of these antioxidants. We want all of them. And to give you an example, antioxidants are also found in some of the things that color our food. And so if you look at all of the foods you eat, those naturally occurring colors, you want to get as many different colors as you possibly can when you're consuming food. So in answer to your question, I think over some of these supplements that you hear about, one of the best things a person can do is eat a wide variety of foods that are very colorful. And this doesn't have to be just fruits and vegetables. For example, if you were, let's say you were eating potatoes, you could eat a sweet potato that's orange or a purple potato rather than a white potato. Even the salmon that you buy, if you buy wild-caught salmon, that beautiful pink color is actually an antioxidant. Even things like chocolate, coffee, tea, spices. So turmeric is a great example. That beautiful orange color is actually an antioxidant as well. So I think that that's a great way to think about diet. There are tons of protective phytochemicals in the diet and antioxidants are a wonderful example of that, that you really want to get those from food rather than supplements. Well, that's some really good advice. That is sort of the popular understanding. And so it's nice to know that it's confirmed by real research by people who really know what they're talking about. Avoid artificial colors, eat natural colors. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, what's funny is kids are very attracted to color. And part of the reason that artificial colors are added to so many foods, if you go into the grocery store, you'll notice there are a ton of kids foods that are laden with these artificial colors. Well, they're doing that to attract the kids to the food. But what's so funny is we, we know kids are attracted to color. Why not get them attracted to the color that naturally occurs in food rather than getting them hooked on these, you know, like the sugary cereals that are artificially colored? And so do you think there's a regulatory approach to that as well? Would you recommend, if you had your way, which of course none of us do, but would you recommend or abolish or would you restrict or prohibit the use of artificial food coloring in general? 
Yeah, we actually have a precedent for this one. We have some great examples from the European Union. The European Union very successfully took out food coloring, artificial food coloring from children's food. So for example, if you look at Kraft macaroni and cheese in the United States, you will see yellow food coloring being added to it. If you pick up a box over in the European Union, you will notice that it is naturally colored and things like turmeric are some of the things they use for natural coloring. Beets could be used for red coloring, for example, but they've quite successfully done that. And they've even put labeling on the products to specify that they're protective. And the reason for this was because of some data that came out looking at some of these artificial food coloring and the effects on ADHD. And they listened to the research and actually made that change. So yes, in answer to your question, I think we could do it here too. I think we just have very powerful lobbying forces when it comes to food manufacturing in the U.S. that would push against it. We're getting close to running out of time. I will say that for those of us, that old adage, you are what you eat, a lot of what you talked about today is going to cause some of us to pause, but you did end up on a, a, a positive note uh, in terms of what we can do to improve our health. Katie, do you have anything else that you want to add before we close? I think that that overall overarching concept of eating real food and stepping away from processed food is a really important one. And sometimes we should remember that a food can be marketed as a health food, in reality, it may not be. So for example, we have a lot of vegan products that are being really very popular right now. And these vegan products many times are made in a laboratory and they are made of chemicals because they're trying to get this product to behave like a food that's not vegan. Sometimes people don't think about those as processed food because they're thinking, oh, I'm doing something good for me and good for the environment. I'm going to eat this vegan product. But across the board, eating real food is always better for you. And it's always better for you than a supplement too. So don't think a supplement is the equivalent. There are many chemical parts to foods that we are just beginning to learn about and that haven't even been isolated. So it's never the equivalent. Well, that's really good advice. And I also just want to close by saying thank you for doing this incredibly important research. I mean, it's, it just seems so important to everybody to have this kind of knowledge out there so that we can be more healthy. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I hope actually there are many of the things you mentioned uh, open up a lot of other questions. So perhaps uh, we can have you back again in the future to try to uh, answer some of those uh, questions. I would be happy to anytime. Well, thank you very much, Katie. Thank uh, you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Bye. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy at american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear more about. Mm-hmm.